0: Out here in the perimeter there are no stars, out here we is stoned, immaculate.
1: Hello and welcome, this is David Eastall and this is the C86 Show, once again bringing you another quality show. I've been delving into my archives over the last uh, couple of weeks to find uh, various interviews I did a few years ago which were played and um, slightly sort of put to one side afterwards and I thought I should bring them out and, um, yes, make them generally available. This is an interview I did with Ray Folk who was the, one of the organisers of the Isle of Wight Festival. A couple of years ago he brought out two books not one, but two, including, um, well, including one being uh, Stealing Dylan from Woodstock when the world came to the Isle of Wight. And the other book that came out at the same time was The Last Great Event with Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison when the world came to the Isle of Wight. Again. So I've got that interview, um, which I'll play after. Or yes, play, after we hear a little bit of Bob Dylan and his um, well, he wrote it. This is All Along the Watchtower
2: There must be some way out of here. Say the Joker to the theme. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief Businessmen, they drink my wine thief he kindly spoke there are many among us who feel that life is but a joke but you and I we've been through that and this is not our fate so let us not talk falsely now the hour is getting late kept the view While all the women came and went Barefoot servants too Outside in the distance A wild cat did growl Two riders were approaching The wind began to howl
1: Bob Dylan and the track titled All Along the Watchtower. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. And as I said, this is a special because I've been delving into the archives to find some classic, classic interview interviews um, from the last five plus years. And this is an interview I did with Ray Boak. Um, He's the author alongside his daughter, Caroline, of two books that came out in 2015 um, Yes, they came out together. Volume one, titled Stealing Dylan from Woodstock, When the World Came to the Isle of Wight. And the second book was titled, oh, I had it all here and then I've lost it. Wow. A lot of people say I never had it. Anyway, and the second book was titled When the World Came to the Isle of Wight, volume two. There you go. I think that's right. Let me check that. Yes, the last great event with Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison. Yes, volumes one and two. Yes, you get the gist. Anyway, these came out. They're amazing books. And uh, this is the interview that I had with Ray. And this is me babbling a little bit at the beginning as we introduced, well, I introduced myself to him. And he then answered my very interesting point that I made. I'm all about the interesting points. Anyway, me, David. Ray, take it away. You've just got two amazing new publications out, haven't you? Yes,
3: have you got the books now?
1: Yes, I have, yeah, and um, they're absolutely stunning. So you didn't just bring out one volume, you brought out two, which is...
3: Well, yeah, they're two... Very... Are we online now? Yes. Well, um, they're two very different stories. Um, first story is really all about getting Bob Dylan and all that, that involved and what that did. Yes. And then the second story is, is how we then went on to do another festival, and run into the most appalling difficulties with local opponents and then you know sort of extreme radicals that wanted a free festival I and mean, with a whole different kind of story yeah that, that followed so interesting that the reason why it couldn't be put into one book is that we couldn't find a sensible title that would cover both things <laughs> <laughs> I mean it sort of started off almost driven by that but there's such different stories and they're, they're, there's a lot of detail to tell as well so it would have been a very big Big book,
1: if it was all in one book. Yeah, well, uh, you know, it, it does suddenly make a for a fantastic sort of Christmas read for anybody who's thinking of getting it over Christmas. But it, it is unlike a puppy. Um, no, the, the same with the puppy. It's not just for Christmas; it's for life because because for for, for a lot of us, we we saw, we've seen the sort of the Isla White festival film, which was the one which is quite iconic, really, isn't yes. it? Because Because it, you know, if. As for things going wrong, um, you just—it it was just incredible. I mean, not yeah, all of it went wrong. I think you'll find
3: that film was quite a gross exaggeration of things going wrong. I mean, there were things that went wrong. Right. Um, the things that went—I'll tell you where the film's really out of kilter with reality.
4: Yeah.
3: And that is um, that where things went wrong. It was going wrong for, for the for the promoters. It didn't go wrong for the audience. The audience hmm. was pretty well unaware of most of. The difficulties we were having, they just sort of sat there grooving, and you know the whole show did continue yes. to, to proper completion. But that film will give you the idea that the thing didn't even get completed. You know, that it was all falling apart.
1: I, yeah, I can I can see that they probably had to sort of make certain edits and make certain choices. So, what made you want to put a festival on in the first place?
3: Well, it, st- it started out with um, purely by chance. My brother got a part time. Job as a fundraiser for charity, trying to build a swimming pool for the Isle of Wight. Yeah, they didn't have an indoor swimming pool, and he he sort of um, looked around for ideas. And between us, we came with the idea of a festival. The it was going to be a small one-day thing, quite yeah. quite modest. But it grew quickly when we got a, an international act, Jefferson Airplane, and then the crazy world of Arthur Brown. It was sort of these big names started appearing. And the charity didn't like the idea of being involved anymore.
4: They right. thought it was going
3: to end up with a lot of hippies arriving and associated problems. Um, and so they, they handed it over to us and said, no, you carry on. We'll, we'll disassociate ourselves and um, you can keep our investment and pay us back later. Right. And so we took it on as our own.
1: And it was at that stage, did you have enough kind of investment to sort of cover the costs or were you having to sort of try and sell ticket sales to cover the costs?
3: Well, time? it was a bit of both really. We, we, we had the initial investment that the, the charity had put in, but then we had to borrow from a, um, a friend of ours who had, had a bit of money at the time, but also then the ticket sales were sort of generating cash flow and it became self-financing. Um, and at the end of it all, after that first one, it kind of broke even.
1: Right. Which was fantastic to be able to... Well, it, was,
3: it was, wasn't a bad start in a way, but we'd learnt a lot from that. I mean, we learnt that you, you needed to put the festival nearer to the ferries and not have people trek across the Isle of Wight like they had to, you know, it was pretty awful.
4: Yeah.
3: And you also learned that those coming from the mainland were not coming in sufficient numbers. You you needed somebody really powerful to draw people across the water. Yeah, And so, hence the idea of Bob Dylan came up.
4: Yeah. That
3: you... You needed a megastar. You know, just an ordinary star was not going to do it.
4: Sure.
3: I mean, if you could, get, if you could see these ordinary stars in a concert hall somewhere else on the mainland, yeah. why would you want to have to get a ferry to go to the Al of to see them? Yes. Now, so with Bob Dylan, that was a bit different. I mean, he, he hadn't been seen for three years. Um, he was the biggest name anyway. People thought that this would be the the only chance they'd ever get to see him and so on. And so people would travel, and they did. Yeah. And they came over in huge numbers.
1: And this was in the 1970s? That was
3: 69.
1: 69. 69
3: that that happened. And um, it was it's a massive event. Um, very successful, too. The, everything went really smoothly. And um, it set us up then for trying to do it again. And we had, I think we had a mind block. We had a, a blockage in our mind about the third one. We're still thinking, well, you've got to be near the ferries and you've got to have somebody really big. Yeah. Well, we couldn't follow Dylan with any individual star. There wasn't anybody of that stature, apart from the Beatles, who were obviously big. They were not. They were breaking up anyway.
4: Yeah.
3: Uh, we did try for the Beatles, but there's no chance, really. So we we thought in terms of, well, let's have a raft of artists, all the big names we can lay our hands on. And we put together that bill that you can now see of... Um, mm-hmm. With Hendrix and Joni Mitchell and Joan Byers and Leonard Cohen, I'm a huge list of names.
1: It is, yeah. It, it
3: was rather overkill, and I get, this is due to our mind, mindset, our blockage that you had to have a lot of big names to make it work.
1: Right. Was it was it quite a gamble? Because obviously, in '68, it it was quite contained with you know like just around that 10,000, and then you made a huge leap in '69, didn't you?
3: Yeah. I mean that was fairly well contained as well. Although we had about 150,000, it was still fairly contained. It was, um, I suppose, um, on a a suitable site, and it was um, very peaceful. There was no trouble from any of the radicals at that festival. And also, the opponents of the festival didn't have time to mobilise. They didn't know it was going to happen. It all happened so quickly. 1970, they had a whole year to mobilise against us. Right. And as well as the radicals themselves mobilised against us, they had time as well. So we'd really set ourselves up, I suppose you could say, in 1970 for um, being attacked from both sides.
1: Because after, you know, just going back, after you did the first two, did you f- feel like... Um, did you think it was just all... I mean, obviously not easy, but did you sort of feel like this, this isn't too bad a, a gig and we're sort of just going to roll on? Did any of you sort of say, you know, did anybody have any doubts after those two, well, first two? Well,
3: I, I think that we were we we're obviously very naive all the way through. We were very young in those days. And also we were full of um, optimism and, and self-assurance. We, we felt we'd done this. Dylan Festival so well yeah. that um, we we couldn't fail in a way. And what's more, we set up a proper organisation. We we really did go for it properly. Yeah. We set up a proper office in a, a mansion house and employed a lot of staff and you know, the heads of department and all that sort of thing. And it, was, it was quite a professional organisation. We were very confident
4: yeah. that,
3: that this was a good business to be in. That you know we could provide a really good service and fabulous event for. Huge numbers of people. Yeah, it just seemed like a really good thing to be doing. Unfortunately, you know, we had opponents coming at us from all angles.
1: Yeah, because I did feel. I mean, up to the the first two. I mean, everything seemed pe- people were generally on your side, and your critics weren't weren't too big. But then you, you, like you said, you had the radicals and and sort of people like I suppose the main character that that came out of all that was uh, Mick Farron, who and. Uh,
3: well, that's right. I mean, Mick Farron took, took it upon himself to form an organisation for the purpose, the White Panthers, which was a, um, a borrowed name from America where there was a radical organisation. Yeah. And he he was just, there was just a handful of them, it was him and two or three others that came down. Yes. And they made themselves out to be a big organisation, which they weren't. But then a lot of radicals arrived from Paris and Europe, you know, people like uh, Jean-Jacques Lebel and a um, character Danny the Red, who'd been in the Paris riots and things. And, and um, they also joined up with Farron and decided that this should be a free festival.
1: Yeah, I mean, were you at that point? Because obviously, the, the Summer of Love was in nineteen sixty-seven, and yeah. things were going terribly well, and everyone was happy. In a few years, things that that kind of that sixties hippie ethos was starting to go slightly sour. I mean, were you aware of that movement of, you know, flower power, the hippies, and and that sort of everybody having a good time, and it was all getting very groovy. What, did you also feel part of that scene?
3: Well, we did, and. We could see that the audience was people came to these festivals in a different way, unlike today, where it's an entertainment thing. It was more of a pilgrimage, and there was a great deal of that going on. you know people had an ethos that they were following the the artists were their gods and goddesses that would provide the message, if you like, and yes. you know the message was in their music, and this music had this massive reach into the population well we were of course we were aware of all that and it was all going very well from that point of view and um, especially having bob dylan i mean who else uh, com- compares with with dylan as a bringer of the message
4: yeah
3: uh, after his background of protest music and so on but the awareness of it turning sour the counterculture turning sour i suppose we weren't initially aware of it we, we did become aware of it quite quickly once the festival got going and these opponents were suddenly upon us. Yeah. Um, I have to say, by the way, that they didn't force us to make the festival free. The festival carried on to the end. The, the amount of damage done to the arena was, was very minimal until after we declared it free ourselves on the final afternoon,
4: Yeah.
3: when, when we'd stopped taking money anyway. Um, but what was happening there was that the festival site was really unsuitable. It was alongside Afton Downs, which is like a huge hillside. which served as a grandstand to people without tickets. Well, we were contracted to build a wall around Afton Down to keep people off it. It was National Trust property and they they negotiated with us and the councils that uh, they wouldn't oppose us if we built built a fence around it to keep people off. Yeah. Well, all of the attacks that were going on were not so much on the festival, but were on the, our attempts to wall off Afton Down. So this hillside became something of a, a kind of a touchstone for opponents. Yeah. And in fact, they did succeed before the festival got going. We we never got the wall built around the around the Afton Down. It was too big a job, and they especially with somebody trying to tear it down every night. Yes. But the arena itself was intact and remained intact throughout. Yeah. So. You know, there's a kind of a detail here that's important to to realize that the insurgency, if you want to call them that, they were very small in number. Yeah. You know, out of the hundreds of thousands there, there there were maybe 100 people who were intent on causing that sort of trouble.
4: Yes. And it was very
3: containable, and we did contain it quite well. It wasn't too much of a problem at all. Um, the, The problem was that we had this hillside, which could then, which did serve as a massive free grandstand for sort of thousands upon thousands of people.
1: Yeah, because, I mean, the lineup up you, you had in that third uh, festival in 1970 was, you know, was absolutely boggling really from you know when you think about people like leonard cohen uh, richie havens Jimi hendrix Row, toll i mean you know the who sly and the family stone i mean you were i mean woodstock was the year before and and so you really seem to sort of take the baton again and take it on so you must have been part of you must have been absolutely thrilled to pieces when you when you got that lineup put together
3: well especially were. we're still I suppose, feeling that we we still didn't have that megastar that we'd had in 69 with Dylan. Right. We still didn't have a Bob Dylan. Now, all of these people individually would were still acts, acts that you could go and see at the Royal Albert Hall or, you know, Portsmouth Guild Hall or wherever, you know. They, they weren't at the same level as Dylan, who was just unattainable.
4: Yeah.
3: So we had that feeling. But given the, the sheer quantity of them, we realised that we were on to something quite big. Yes, and, and what's more, we—I think—we also outdid Woodstock with the breadth of our music, having certainly having Leonard Cohen, for instance, distinguished as from Woodstock, and Miles Davis, another one. We are really trying to broaden out the the repertoire here,
1: yeah.
3: And so I think we were pretty successful on that on that score
1: so yeah and i mean i mean when you saw the film that they made from that how did you feel because obviously you know it's it's a very captivating film because woodstock is very much just about i mean there's lots of little clips of um, you know the various people from the audience kind of wandering around but with the island white film there's an awful lot with you um, talking backstage and dealing with the issues how did you how did that make you feel
3: well i i felt cheated i mean You'll find in, in the volume two of these books that I give a whole chapter to the story of these films and how they came about. It, it started off as our film. We financed it and hired the director. and The whole thing was made under our control. It was our production company.
4: Yeah.
3: And we ended up, several years later, handing it over to the director by way of a settlement with him to get him out of our hair almost. you know, We, we were moving on to other things. He was challenging in the courts because we couldn't proceed financially with it yeah. to finish it, and we fell out with him. So he took the film away, and it was 20 years later before it reemerged is that version you're talking about.
4: Mm.
3: Well, he completely trashed the festival, you know, by um, showing it as a almost what, what I've described in the past as being an essay in conflict, yeah. and he shows the conflict between artists and promoter between promoter and audience between promoter and local community and just looking for all the different ways in which there's conflict in a situation yeah. which is interesting but if you do it to the extent he did it and showing a lot of trouble which was kind of cut in where it didn't belong and falsifying the story then then it's out of order yeah absolutely. so so for instance i mean he he shows some attack on the fence which was actually attack on the fence around the hillside which took place before the festival even started and he cuts that in after the doors on the saturday night right so the anybody watching that is going to think well crikey all that's going on while the doors are performing you know yeah which is completely false there's another there's another scene on the sunday morning where i'm actually trying to clear the arena so it can reticket ticket people and i've watched this thing many times and i've always wondered well, i never remember it being that sort of troublesome
4: yeah
3: and it suddenly occurred to me as uh, i was actually transcribing it for the book and it and i spotted what was happening he cut in some trouble making scenes from the friday night and the 22 seconds cut in, in in about six segments which made this otherwise peaceful scene look really troublesome and violent right so i mean that's no way for Documentary no. maker to carry on. If you if you get the chance, I mean, and you you see it again, notice what happens on that Sunday morning yes. scene. You, you can once you know it's there, you spot it. It's very clear because the the, the lighting is different, and the, the people causing trouble are bare chested, whereas in fact it was cold and everybody was wrapped up in blankets. So it, it becomes quite obvious once you realise what's happening. Yeah. So so a lot of tricks were being played in the cutting and. Um, I mean, I've challenged the director about all this, and I sent him a manuscript for him to comment on, and which he did, and I've included that in my my account of it all. But it, it really wasn't a very fair way to try and portray the thing.
1: Yeah, well, I, I just well, I, I, there is the film, but there's been a few little documentaries. I remember there was one particular one where they were talking to people who were very young who had gone to that festival at the time and the life-changing experience that that. Gave them because they just said life was never going to be the same again. And even the people who were the the local, more the locals who were also working for the festival, they also had an amazing experience as well. So you must feel kind of pleased that there is. Well,
3: a... absolutely. And I should tell you that I have been going around for the last two years now doing book launch events, where I give readings and you know with quite big audi- audiences sometimes, and meeting lots and lots of people who were there. Yes. Um, and. It's almost universal. I, I don't think I've met anybody who's 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 had bad things to say about it in terms of experiencing the kind of trouble shown in that film.
1: Yeah, because I think I've, there was a, there was a particular person who went into a band called um, God. I can't. His name was Nick Laid Clunes, and he was in a band called Dr- Dream Academy. And he, I yeah. think, he was 14, and he jumped on the train. Yeah, yeah. And he and he went and just said, and it was a lovely little documentary. And I just I remember. Sort I of think people, I've
3: seen that. I, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, there were some critics. There was one critic that was on film that was um, spent all weekend in a police station because there were busters at Yarmouth Ferry, you know, and then sort of saying negative things about the festival. But by and large, I mean, the people were positive. Yes. And it was a life-changing... I mean, so many people say it's a life-changing experience.
1: Yeah. And how did you... I mean, what happened after that? I mean, what did... You know, how long did it take to sort of clear up the... You know, like...
3: Well, Mm -hmm. we were some years clearing that up but we went on to promote in London we put on uh, events at the Oval Cricket Ground and the first ever music event at Wembley Stadium
1: right
3: which was the 1972 London Rock and Roll show okay with Chuck Berry Little Richard Jody Lewis and all those people so that was quite a um, Quite a momentous event in itself.
1: Yes, absolutely. And when and putting this book together, did it bring back quite a lot of memories? And were you able to sort of well, process stuff?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And one of the great things about doing this was going out and finding people and renewing acquaintances and you know looking up old friends who we would probably never otherwise have got to see again. And now we've reestablished friendships from way back. Yeah. So oh. that was a terrific part of doing this research and writing the books
1: because recently i went to the vna to see this exhibition called so you want a revolution yeah. um and again there was a lot of people there who who was sort of part of the scene this was on the press yeah. day and again there was a lot of people who were just enjoying remembering it even though i suspect most people have had i don't know different experiences but over the decades i think they were able to sort of look back and sort of think well actually though it's easy to focus on some of the bad things that happened. There was also an awful lot of good things to sort of yep. remember and focus on.
3: Oh, the, I, I think the the whole era of the 60s counterculture was was a fabulous um, period with great optimism and could have gone a long way. But you, you started off, by the way, asking me about how it turned sour. My, my take on it is that the whole thing was largely fashion-based. When I say fashion, in terms of what's, fashionable to listen to in music as well as what it might be fashionable to wear and there was a great divide that took place at the end of the 60s where an element was getting more radical and wanted literally a revolution, you know, like a bloody revolution on the streets. And then the vast bulk of people who didn't want that were getting softer in a way and were moving happily moving away on the music scene towards glam rock rather than Anything to do with protest or social issues,
4: yeah.
3: and so that divide took place. And the, the hard line has become the the kind of free festival brigade that end up fighting with police at in Windsor Great Park or Stonehenge. Yeah, and the and the great mass of the public have have moved on to other sorts of music with David Berry and Slade and um, you know all, all the glam rock people of the early seventies.
1: Yeah, because it was, I suppose, having sort of looked at that period, I could see, you know, people quite like having little chapters, don't they? In the 60s, I mean, probably started in, if you're looking at it as a sort of uh, the hippie counterculture, it was about 63, 64, until about 1970. And I suppose where Isla White fits a little bit into that narrative is the fact that people like Jimi Hendrix died soon after, Jim Morrison also died, and then there was Janice Joplin. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, she didn't, she wasn't at the festival. And then you had that sort of element, like, like the Charles Manson scene, where things were going sour. Yeah. And I remember talking to Barry Miles, who was part of that scene of the IT, um, International Times, yeah. and he set up various bookshops. And I asked him, you know, when I did an interview, you know, what happened towards the end of the 60s? And he said, well, to be honest, we, all, we were just all tired. We all just needed to have a rest. And because I, and I often wondered, you know, how the 60s slightly came to an end. And I suppose that's where the Isle of Wight Festival somehow bookmarks it.
3: Well, I think it's bookmarked by the decade itself, obviously, and being, you know, into a new decade. Yeah. But also, it was timely that these things were changing, and I think, you know, the radical elements were moving one way, and the the vast bulk of people were shifting another. Yes, and it's just one of those things. I, I don't know. Po- politics changed um, in Britain. The the Labour government was kicked out. The quite a, quite a gloomy sort of scene among young, liberal-type people, liberal-minded people. Yeah. And I, I think you're right. People also got burnt out. A lot of the leadership people got burnt out and... Yeah, and just had to take a rest.
1: Well, also, I think there was the, the next generation of young people coming through, and actually those are 60s people were probably in their 20s, probably late 20s in pop terms. Yeah. They were almost like, well, that's the, they're kind of the old people now. Yeah. And, they, and They were also the first of the generation of old pop stars in their late 20s, and, and people still wanted teenagers. And I suppose when Bowie came along, and I suppose Mark Boland had slightly managed to jump and the glam yeah. rock scene, you know, it did, it did make people like Hendrix and The Doors look a little bit like old men even though they were only 27. Yeah,
3: you're right. But it, what one thing that occurred to me is that the fashion in music, where you, where you hear people say, well, I don't listen to my parents' music, you know, it's, it's too old hat. A lot of people, um, a very large proportion of people, won't listen to the music of their older siblings, right. who might only be one or two years older, and they want their own stuff. Yeah. And so it's that fast-moving. It makes it really fast-moving. Absolutely. Um, you know, if, if you've got... Kids who are rejecting what their siblings were listening listening to a year ago, yeah, <laughs> and, and that's still going on today, isn't
1: it? Well, I, uh, I I find a lot of people though will whatever their age still bizarrely sort of know the work of Bob Dylan and Jimi Hendrix and the Beatles. So they that that kind of period seems to have now have got a, a certain island that people will just go back to perhaps you know five years or whatever they're not that interested in going back to because that was like five years ago but some going back to 40 years and listening to you know the Woodstock albums and hearing who was at the Isle of Wight in 1970 still has a fascination for people
3: yeah I think incidentally if you look through the list of artists just ask you so how many of these are still important names today that have endured all this time. A yes. huge proportion of them have.
1: Well, I would imagine probably 95%. <laughs> yeah. and I, mean, I think that's <laughs> a remarkable thing about those artists, that yes. they did endure I know. I mean, there, there's, there was very few that you could almost think, oh, I have no idea who that person is, you know, but which again, is incredible. So you were just mentioning, sort of, doing this book, you know, you got to meet and all sort of reconnect with various people. I mean, did, you know, how did your relationship go with people like Ricky Farr, who was quite sort of part of the team at the time?
3: Well, he's somebody who we haven't contacted. Uh, we, we did try. He's over in America somewhere. Um, and I didn't. In, in the end, I didn't think we really needed to, to talk to Ricky. I don't think he was going to give us anything new that we didn't no. really have. Um, But we just lost contact with him. We, we tried every which way to contact him, and just couldn't find him. Yes. But um, he, he's had quite a lot to say over the years, which much, much of which um, is not entirely. Um, accurate or, or fair.
1: Yeah, I sort of, you know, I've sort of realised because he was, again, he came over on the film quite a few times when he was getting slightly emotional. Well, of. he
3: went really over the top as, as the MC. Yes. Um, and Ricky Farr is prone to exaggerate his role in all this. He was the MC, he was the stage manager. He was never a partner or a promoter in it. Yeah. Um, but he's always liked to Talk about it like it was his festival.
1: Yeah, because actually it was just you and your brother, really, wasn't it?
3: Yeah, I mean, also my younger brother Bill was um, very much a part of it too. But it essentially, Ronnie and I—that yes. that were the—and we were the directors of the, of the of the company and everything else. We had the financial responsibility.
1: Yeah, and did you also, I mean, over the decades, did you ever sort of bump into anybody like Mick Farron and have a chat with them about it?
3: Well, we tried to contact Mick Farron. He died. Sadly, before we we could arrange anything, we, he he just got back to Britain. He was not ill. He was not well. He was ill, and yeah. he um, he sent a message to say he wasn't well enough at the moment. So we didn't get to see McFarlane. We did see quite a lot of people. Um, we saw on Andrew Carr, for instance, who set up the first Glastonbury Festival, right, and and devised the thing on on the way back from the Isle of Wight.
4: Yeah,
3: I mean that was quite an interesting link that they they'd, they'd um, he was. Arabella Churchill had decided that they were going to go and do a festival properly now and they'd make it free yeah. and they knew of a site in a place called Glastonbury yes.
4: <laughs>
3: and they, they set up the first one in 1971 with David Berry and it was a, quite a successful little event it was quite small and, yeah. and they lost all their money because it was free and they couldn't repeat it no, this is and terrible. then about nine years later Michael Evis had to go commercially and um, made it work
1: Yeah, I know, that was quite an amazing story. Because actually with with a lot of that that period from from the Isle of Wight, from those three years, I mean, there was in the East Anglia, there was a lot of small festivals and fairs, and I suppose people called them fairs more than festivals because it was more about community and yeah. and a sort of a, a country a, more of a getting back to the country and living in communes and living off the land so and that was only and that started to happen very early 70s probably the next year or two after the Isle of Wight so obviously a lot of those ideas from that counterculture did seep into different parts of the country and different people had different interpretation because it wasn't about seeing the bands. It was about seeing theatre groups or clowning or sort yeah, of having yeah. themes around the festivals. So oh, there,
3: there was definitely a sort of a, um, a cultural heritage. And other things that came out of it, things like Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace were movements that came out in the early 70s um, with some strength. Yeah. I would say was a byproduct of the 60s counterculture. Yes. Um, so of course, Glastonbury, when it got going, really did have a green, uh, a greenfield part to it, and still has.
1: Yeah. Well, I, when I went to that V&A exhibition, um, so you want a revolution? I mean, it was quite interesting. A lot of the little seeds got sort of taken out of the '60s movement and did sort of start to sort of grow. And and a lot of things that we take for granted now, you know, from gender to race to environmental issues, did come out of that period. Yeah.
3: So well, I, ab- absolutely. I think it's a good period, and. Uh, is is much maligned by some people. I mean, some people complain about about the liberal left sort of messing up the country in the 1960s. But uh, a lot of good things happened in the 60s, and, as well as problematic things, but I think, by and large, it was very good.
1: Yes, and you must be really delighted with the two books that have come out.
3: Oh, very much so, yeah, and they've been selling quite well and, um, you know, people seem to like them. We have got some great reviews and... Um, it's great to have the story told from our point of view and have it out there.
1: Yeah. I mean, when you finished it, did you, do you feel like there's a certain sense of completion?
3: I did, except that we're, we finished the first one and we're still grappling with the second one. <laughs> 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 finished the second one and we've, we seem to be forever promoting it. Right. Um, and we're actually working on a film script at the moment. So it, it, it may come out as, a, as another film.
1: Right. Does that feel important? Do you feel like it's just nice to have it down and sort of slightly corrected?
3: I it does. Yes, I think with the books definitely, it feels it's good to have it out there corrected and and redress the balance after all the years of nonsense that people come out with. Do you know with the films we're talking about, the the Mary Lerner film? Yeah. The trouble with that film is not the film itself; it's the way that people look to it for their research, and right. if they're doing an article or a program they They immediately watch that film and think well that's what that's good research, you know, and in a way, film is primary source material, yes, but when it's been cut, it can be something else, and that's the problem with it, and it gets repeated
1: yes, I know, and it becomes folklore. and then it goes it? everywhere and yes. it
3: is, it's obviously all over youtube and it's um you see you see it in other films that have been made documentaries made by the b b c and you know it's sort of everywhere,
1: yes. Well, I suppose within that, I mean, obviously you're talking about the editing being very dubious, but there is a lot of fantastic little clips. That oh, are...
3: absolutely, yeah, and there's some wonderful music. I I think that the music in those films, and, and there are about nine or ten other documentaries by Mary Lerner of individual artists at the Isle of Wight, yeah. um, that the music is the best. I would say, festival footage of the era in the world. There's yeah. nothing like it from any other festival or by any other filmmakers
1: of yeah. that era.
3: It's beautiful footage. I can't, I can't knock him on that score.
1: No, this is true, actually. Yes, well, I suppose at the time, people probably just thought, oh, this is a jolly... Didn't realise the kind of um, cultural significance that it was going to be.
3: Well, I think what happened with the film was that in 1969, with the Bob Dylan event, which caught everybody unawares, most photographs and footage of it are all black and white. Yeah. Um, and, you know, because of the... for budgetary reasons. Mm-hmm. In 1970, the whole world descended on the Isle of Wight to, with colour film, and no festival so well photographed or filmed as, as that festival.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you must be very pleased, and your family and daughter must be very amazed at, that you're in the Guinness Book of Records as well.
3: Well, I suppose, I suppose there's some satisfaction in that. <laughs> I mean... The, the, the thing that, that isn't pleasing is the fact that other people then went on to do it better than us and probably make a lot of money out of it. We, we didn't make money out of it. And, and I suppose it's the price you pay for being a pioneer. Yes, this and is true. And one of my sayings has always been, never be a pioneer. <laughs> I, I've, <laughs> I've pioneered a few things in my life and you know, not necessarily made the money out of it. I, I think the pioneer doesn't necessarily make the money
1: no i i completely agree because actually the same with because i was also fascinated with the woodstock story and and again the, you know, it went terribly wrong with the organisers and their, you know, relationships with each other yeah. and friendships. And, you know, they really didn't make... They lost phenomenal money, didn't they, really? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And they much, just,
3: more than, much more than we could imagine.
1: Yeah, and, and they really had to sell everything to Warners to make yeah. the album and the, and do the film. So, I mean, I, I kind of get that feeling from sort of watching those and reading articles that, like you said, it does leave you a little bit, I wouldn't say damaged, but slightly bruised, probably,
3: Well, I mean, we're bruised in one way, but in another way, we obviously feel great satisfaction as to what we accomplished. And, you know, I suppose we'd be pretty ungrateful people if we were complaining, because I think we did have incredible good fortune.
4: Yes. Um,
3: And we had good fortune in getting Bob Dylan. That, That was like winning the lottery, you know. And then we had good fortune in getting that 1970 event together and succeeding in running it and holding it and as you say, being in the Guinness Book of Records with it and everything else. So massive good fortune went our way, yeah. along with, you know, some not-so-good fortune.
1: That's the price, I suppose. Was it Macmillan who said, events, dear boy? Yes, exactly, <laughs> yes. So true. Um, so, look, just last question. Um, what would what would you say, then, to your younger self, you know, if you were to sort of give them, you know, a, a late teen, early 20, somebody who was, who was going to embark on some adventures? What would your advice be?
3: Oh, gosh, I didn't have been asked that quite that way before. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, it, it's easy to say, well, be cautious, but then if you're too cautious, then you don't ever do anything. Um, I think dare to believe, but, you know, keep your feet on the ground, definitely.
4: Yes. I, one,
3: of the, one of the things that we helped us succeed, I think, in as much as we did succeed, was the fact that we were young and young, and. Um, naive, but at the same time we're very responsible, and we you know we tried to be responsible businessmen you know who wore suits and we had proper offices and conducted ourselves in a really sensible way and were taken seriously
4: yeah absolutely. and so
3: you know because we were so young, we felt we had to do that to try and address that balance we didn 't want to be seen as a bunch of kids, yes, and so i I think you 've got to be responsible, but at the same time you 've got to dare to believe and and not necessarily lose all your naive, naivety <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's a very tricky mix isn't it actually on that level but what,
3: what we might have done differently i mean I, I could i could give you examples of specifics but that, that's not what we're talking about but in general i'm not sure i could think of any one thing that we've done differently
1: right well that's good I mean, I mean, I have to say, I think your leg, you know, the legacy you left is kind of amazing, and it's an amazing chapter, isn't it? No one, you know, it's a bit like being the first person on the moon. You know, no one can ever sort of take that away that you were the people who did the Isle of Wight Festival. Which, when you just look at that lineup from those three years, it was absolutely incredible.
3: Well, certainly, certainly, I'll tell you what is most regrettable, and that is that the Isle of Wight itself didn't immediately embrace the thing like it could have done, and. Well, this is something that we can really do some good work with for our young people and for the community and for the economy of the island and make this the island of music and really go for it instead of just attacking us and trying to close it all down. Yeah. I mean, that's the biggest regret, I suppose. I know. And and, that has... I mean, I've got a a, a dual feeling about this because at one level I feel bitter about that, but at another level I still feel I'd like to see the Alibite do well out of it all.
1: Yes, well, I suppose they they started having festivals again, didn't well, they? Well,
3: that's right. Well, they're they're very successful, and they they are doing better out of it all. But they could still go a lot further.
1: Yeah. Well, it's interesting because with um Michael Evers and Glastonbury and or you know the Pilton Pop Festival, as some people call it. I mean, they in a in a way, I mean, if it hadn't been for that festival, that area and that town. Would have been just. It would be nothing really without the Glastonbury Festival. Really, yeah. and It would just be a rather poky little country town with a few yeah. sort of rather backward shops. Or, yeah. But anyway. But it's,
3: but it's even worse for an island because an island's is so cut off. Yes. That it needs its own economy. It needs something that will really, you know, give it give it some force in the world.
1: <laughs> well, I know. Well, uh, there's nothing like having. A, a a unique selling point, a USB, yeah. because then people will talk about Glastonbury Festival, you know, and like I said, it's not even in Glastonbury; it's in Pilton. And but we we all, you know, that that word Glastonbury just gets banded about yeah. thousands of times a day by everybody in yeah, the media, yeah. and so you just end up thinking, oh, I might go to Glastonbury, or I'll um, at least I'm aware of it. Whereas the Isle of Wight, you just have this kind of don't have, have no idea what Glast- what happens there, and it might just be full of old people retired. Mm. And I have no idea, but, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing, your legacy. And like I said, the film that I really enjoyed was this little documentary where they caught up with a few people yeah. who were there, and they all just had an amazing time. And I think Nick uh, Lay Clunes was, was one who was, yeah. I think, 14, went to it. and
3: no, I know who you're talking about. I know his story. Yeah, and it
1: was just lovely. He got there with his little sister, and they all you, had an amazing time.
3: You, you should look at the Isle of Wight. The, it's called the 1970 Isle of Wight Festival Veterans. Okay. Uh, Facebook
4: page. Oh, excellent!
3: Um, it's quite interesting. A lot of people there. They're all saying the same thing. Yeah, uh, what a great time they had. Well, and uh, there's you know quite a big membership there. Yeah. Stuff being posted there every day.
1: Brilliant. Well, yeah. Well, Ray, thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this. And well, thank uh,
3: you for being so interested. <laughs> yeah,
1: and what I'll do, I'll tell your publisher when the interview goes out. Yeah. and that will be fantastic. But thank you ever so much. Okay,
3: well, I hope it's been useful.
1: Oh God, Bye. fantastic. Take care. Bye.
3: Thanks, and yeah, All thank that. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.
1: And that is my interview with Ray Folk. Um, talking about the two books that came out a few years ago, which I'm sure are still available. I'm pretty convinced they are. And they're absolutely worth tracking down. One is titled towards Steel and Dylan from Woodstock, and the other one, The Last Great Event, with Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison. Wow, that is an amazing lineup. Anyway, um, they are available from all good bookshops and probably online as well. But this has been David Eastall. This C eighty six show. If you want to contact me, you can via Facebook, Twitter, even Instagram. Check me out. You can just go to at C eighty six show. They all these shows have been podcast as well, so you can hear them. I've got quite a few other bits and pieces around um yes that's on um spotify itunes podbean and mixcloud and um do keep it positive and creative and nice otherwise don't bother um i don't want to hear from you but otherwise yes say hi it's always nice but i'll leave you with another track um thank you for listening if you still are if you're not then i don't blame you really um this is going to be more dylan and um all i have to say is have a great week
0: You dressed so fine, threw the bumps of dime in your prime. Then you, people call, say, beware, doll, you're bound to fall, you thought they were all kidding you. You used to laugh about everybody that was. vacuum of his eyes and say do you want to thinking that they got it made exchanging all precious gifts but you better take a diamond ring you better pawn it baby Nothing to lose You're invisible now You got no secrets To conceal